And please take your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, and we will be in the second chapter, Revelation chapter 2. Now, I've entitled this sermon, something that we see directly referenced in Revelation chapter 2, and it is about the church at Ephesus that they had forsaken their first love. And as I look at this passage, I find it tremendously challenging because isn't it easy for us to take for granted, to move into complacency in any relationship, but especially in our relationship with God? A number of years ago, there was a commercial on the radio about bank teaser rates. And the first part of the commercial was this articulate voice that said, you're everything I've dreamed for, hoped for, longed for. And then they get married, and then the voice changes. Hey, bring me another beer, baby, chop, chop. (laughs) And the point of it was things change sometimes. We hold out hope for a better rate with the banks, and they Of course, as soon as they get us, sort of let it go, right? And we find that those teaser rates were just teaser rates. Well, the same thing in some relationships. In some relationships, they start out great. There's passion. There's love. There's a deepening in that relationship. And then something happens. They start to sort of wane in that passion. And as I look at the church, and I'm not talking about just our church, I'm talking about the church at large. Many times I think that same mindset, that same approach applies to our relationship with God. And that's what Jesus talks about in this passage, forsaking our first love and how we avoid that and how we need to get back to the passion that we had when we first came into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So let's look at the first part of this passage, and what we're going to see is each one of the letters, there are going to be seven of them in chapters two and three, each one of the letters follow a pattern. Jesus identifies himself, and then after his identification, he generally talks about strengths within the church, and then generally he will speak about something that they need to get right, and then there is a statement at the conclusion about what they have to look forward to, either good or bad, as a result of their choice on what they do with what Christ calls them to. Now, the unique thing about the identification phase of the letter is Jesus takes statements that were made in Revelation chapter 1 in describing Christ, and he uses that as an application for how he is addressing the church. Often it has to do with the subject matter that he's talking about. And this letter to the church at Ephesus is no different. When we begin in this first verse of chapter 2, notice it says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now we saw last week that angel refers to the pastor, the messenger from God to the church at Ephesus. And Jesus is speaking directly through this messenger, the words that we're about to read. By the way, this is a part of John's vision that was recorded in the first chapter. And so really what John is doing with these letters is taking dictation. 
He is listening to the voice of God, and then he is directly composing what God told him to compose in the form of dictation. And so this is what God wants us to hear. First of all, look at this identification of Christ. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, when we go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, we see what those stars that Christ holds in his hand represents. And those stars represent the pastors. Now, once again, it's not because the pastor is a star, but it's really communicating to us in symbolism that Jesus Christ calls or chooses the messengers that go to each church, and he holds them, he controls them, he uses them. The holding them in his hand has the idea of control, it has the idea of God superintending the work of these pastors, and that's what he wants the church at Ephesus to understand. The words that are coming to them about them are coming from those that Christ has called as pastors, as messengers, to speak to them. And really, this idea of pastors being those who move the church along in maturity is found in other passages of Scripture. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11, speaking of Christ, it says, and he, that's who this is referring to, Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God gives church leaders to lead, to grow the church in maturity. And so this is who he is speaking through. Another passage of Scripture we find is 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter writes, Be shepherds of the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here's the image that Peter gives us. Jesus is the chief shepherd. The pastors of the church or churches are under shepherds directed by him to lead the church. So what he's saying to the church at Ephesus is important because understand that John had served in the church at Ephesus. He had a connection with them, and he was communicating to them, it's not I who say this because you have another pastor now, it's the messenger that God has in place at this time. And so as a church body, listen, but not only the church body, the pastor needs to listen to the voice of God. He has to hear what God is saying to him and to the church. So it's an important call to listen up, to pay attention, if you will. Something else. Notice the first verse goes on to say that he not only holds the seven stars in his right hand, but then it goes on to say he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, again, going back to the last verse of that first chapter, just before this verse, he identified what the lampstands represent. And the lampstands represent 
the church. There are seven churches that these letters are written to. Ephesus is the first one that's addressed. And so it's a letter to these churches telling them that Jesus Christ walks among you. Now, I think that's significant for us to think about. The church isn't a social gathering, although there are elements of coming together with other believers. That could be accomplished outside the church. The church has a unique role, an important role. We have the presence of Jesus Christ in our midst as we assemble. And we need to think about that. We are always before the presence of Christ, so we need to think in terms of, hey, I'm coming here to go to church, but I'm also coming here to be in the very presence of Jesus Christ. He walks in our midst. His presence is with us. So we need to remember that as we listen to these words about his assessment of the church. We have Jesus walking in our midst. We need to remember that. Something else. As we move on in this text, we find that, again, a pattern is followed as Jesus writes to these various churches. And what we find as he comes to this part of the text is he's addressing the church to tell them of their commendations, the things that he looks at and says, this is what you have right. Now, how many of you have had to perform a review of somebody? See hands. Any, any hands? Okay, you've had to do that, right? Um, how many of you have had to be reviewed by somebody? In those reviews, how many of you either start with the good qualities or have heard good qualities mentioned to you during the review to start? Probably everyone who's had a review, that's a pattern, right? Usually we start with the strengths and we talk about that. Well, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's reviewing the church at Ephesus, and in this review, he begins with their strengths. And as we look at this, if we were to hear this review of the church at Ephesus, we would probably feel pretty good about the first part of this review. Because what he shares with them are some really good things. As a matter of fact, these are things that we should strive toward. Look as we come to the second verse. What Jesus begins to address with them is, first of all, their works. This was a busy church. They were engaged in serving God. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So the first part of this is they conduct themselves properly. They're working. They are not a lazy church. They are not uninvolved. As a matter of fact, when the word toil appears, it carries the idea of working to the point of exhaustion. This was a busy church. They were engaged in serving God and in serving their community and in serving one another. So as we look at this description of the church, we see a church that had ministry going. It had people committed to that ministry. When people thought of the church at Ephesus, they thought, here is a church that has a high commitment level. In many churches, there's the 80-20 proposition, right? 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. 
Here at the church at Ephesus, the implication is, as a church body, as a church family, they were working, toiling in their service of God. So that's a good thing. I wonder how people would describe my individual life as far as toil in my service of God, or if Christ were writing a letter to Oakland Bible Church, what would he say about Oakland Bible Church? How would he say we're doing? I would love to be able to say about us that we have the toil and the patient endurance that's mentioned in this passage. Something else that he commends them for. They correctly apply God's word. Listen, it is so essential to know God's word and then to not just know it, but to allow it to be a filter through which we judge everything that happens in our lives. Look at what he says about this church at Ephesus. You cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, when there was sin that was taking place in the church, they didn't just look the other way. They practiced what they preached. If somebody was engaged in wanton sin, they brought them an accountability to the place to where that sin would be addressed. There are many churches that sort of wink and look the other way when it comes to sin. There are many believers that do that with their own lives. This is not the case at the church at Ephesus. They were not putting up with it. And they were able to see doctrinal nuances. Look at what the Scripture goes on to say. They have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and they found them to be false. You see, during the first century, there were those who were coming along and saying, I am an apostle. Listen to what I say. Never mind that there's not Scripture to back it up because I have a direct commission from God. You're to hear what I have to say and not run it through the filter of Scripture. What the people at the church at Ephesus were doing was they were running it through the filter of Scripture, and they were saying, no, you're not an apostle, and I'm not going to listen to what you have to say because it doesn't match up with the apostles' teachings and with the Lord's commands. You know, as a church body, having that doctrinal purity is essential. We don't want to make our decisions about what is right doctrinally on the basis of feelings. We don't want to do it on the basis of a current trend. We want to make sure that when we look at what goes on in our church, we're biblically based. Are we following what the Scripture has to say? I would hope that God's assessment of my life and of Oakland Bible Church would be that we are true to God's Word that we are doctrinally where we should be in following the truth of God. One other commendation. As we go on in this text, we find that they are those who continue in hardships. And I'm going to skip those two verses and move right into this one. They continue in the face of hardships. I want you to think about the historical setting of the church at Ephesus. This was during the time of Domitian, the Roman emperor who was notorious for persecuting the church. When we look historically, I saw one graph that had persecution under the various Roman emperors, and Domitian was right up there with Nero, um, perhaps even a little above Nero as far as persecution of the church. This is what they had to function under. 
And yet, look at what is said about them. They were those who remained faithful. They endured patiently. And look at how it's framed in this text, bearing up for my name's sake. In other words, their persecution was because they took a stand for Jesus Christ. And even in the face of that persecution, they did not grow weary. You know, when we look around the world and we hear the testimonies of believers who faithfully endure in the face of persecution, we're put to shame. The things that they must bear for the name of Jesus Christ. When they go to worship, they take their life in their hands and yet they go to worship. When they evangelize, they could be reported and lose liberty or life. And yet, they're so committed to the gospel, they share God's truth. I took a trip to India a few years ago, and I was talking to a young man who, upon finding a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, informed his Hindu parents. And his father's response was, you walk out the door with the clothes on your back and nothing else, you're dead to me. 18-year-old kid. He connected with a church body. He lived in the house that the church owned and served in it so that he could work toward becoming a missionary and serving Christ in that faith community. It's amazing to me because when I saw him, he had joy. Even though he told that painful story he rejoiced in the opportunity to serve God. You know, when I look at the American church, I don't know that that same commendation can be made about us. When it comes to engaging in our faith community, we do it at convenience when it works. Here are people who faced physical emotional, terrible persecution. And they remained strong and they remained faithful and they were engaged in serving in the church at Ephesus. What a commendation. So here's this church. They're working hard. They are engaged in their community. They are patiently enduring terrible persecution Surely there's nothing bad to say about this church, right? They seem to really have it together. We would all love to be a part of a church exactly like that. But look at what the text goes on to say. There's a correction for them. And what they're corrected for is this. They refuse to make the main thing the main thing. Look at verse 4. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, to what is this referring? When you read various commentators on the book of Revelation, there's one camp that says the love you had at first was the love they had for Jesus Christ. And there's some compelling arguments for that perspective. Then you look at this other camp and they say 
Now, we think that it's the love that they had for one another. When you go back to the book of Ephesians, you see all of those passages about loving one another. They had forgotten that. You know what I think? I think it's both. I think it was purposefully ambiguous that they had lost love they had at first because they had lost that passion they had for Jesus, which in turn causes us to lose our passion for our fellow man. What God tells us in His Word is this, that the most important command in all of Scripture is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And so what I think is being communicated here is this. They had stopped loving Jesus Christ in the way that they should. They were no longer loving Him with the passion that they once had. They were loving Him in a matter of convenience, not in the matter of a passionate love for Christ. Let me ask you something. If I were to pull you, and this isn't a hand-raising situation, but if I were to pull you and say, do you love Jesus? I would hope that everybody in the congregation would say, absolutely, I love Jesus. Well, let me ask you something. If somebody told you that they loved you, but they never longed to see you, they sporadically communicated with you, when there was an opportunity to go spend time with somebody else rather than you, they always chose somebody else, and the only time they came to you was when there was need or when they didn't really have anything else to do. Would you say that person loves you? I would say no. I would look at that and say, yeah, that, 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 those are words. Words come easy. Jesus Christ, who was able to see into the hearts of the people, is challenging them. And what he's saying to them is, you have lost the love you had for me at first. Ephesus would have been a second generation, perhaps even third generation church by now. The passion that they had early on had decreased. And church had become more about activity and doing stuff than pursuing a passion for Jesus Christ. And that's a trap that we can all fall into. Even those of us in ministry can fall into the trap of being heavily active in what we're doing, but no passion, no love for Jesus Christ motivating us in what we do. And so what Jesus is calling the church to, what He's calling Christians to, is look at your love. Do you love me? Are you passionate about how you feel about me? And I would submit to you that it will show in our attitudes about what we're doing. If I passionately love Jesus, I look at ministry opportunity as a way of gratefully expressing to him my love for him. And it's not a burden. It's not something that I look at and say, I can't believe I have to do this. It's me looking and saying, I passionately love Jesus and I want to serve him. What about our fellow man? Do you passionately love the people around you? 
And I'm not talking about the type of love that is some sort of trumped-up love where we get ooey-gooey feelings. I'm talking about a decision commitment where I decide to commit myself to those around me. And I love them by the love that is produced by the Spirit of God. Not a love that is just something that I say I do, dabble in, and then forget about it. Jesus Christ was calling the church at Ephesus to task. And what he was saying to them is, love me like you did it first. So the charge, they were forsaking their first love. What about the course correction? Okay, so I'm evaluating myself. I'm here under review. And the Lord, the ultimate boss, has just said, you're doing a lot of stuff, but you're not doing it for the right reasons because you're not doing it out of love for me or love for your fellow man. I'd better listen real carefully to the next part of the review because this is the part where the boss says, here's the course correction I want you to make. These are the things I want you to change in. So let's look at what those things are, starting at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, there's a three-part plan here that's very simple for us to understand. The first part of the course correction that we find is remember where you have fallen from. Now, this is a question that only you can ask yourselves. Do you love Jesus Christ more today than you did in the past? Or was there a point in your walk where you were passionate about Jesus? You loved him with a depth of passion that motivated you to live for him wholeheartedly no matter the cost. Was there that time? Second question, are you there now? Do you passionately love Jesus? Or is your walk with God something that you do on occasion, but not wholeheartedly? You're doing it out of duty. You're doing it out of tradition. You're doing it because, oh, I guess I should probably love God in this way. But your heart isn't in it. Here's the truth. God hasn't changed who he is or how he loves us. We're the ones who have changed. So when we look and we see that we have fallen from a position of passion and service and love, we're the ones who have changed. We become distracted. We've forgotten that first love that we had for Christ, and we've somehow gotten off track. This is what was happening to the church at Ephesus. As a church body, they were abandoning the most important thing. Look at the second step in this process in verse 5. Not only are they to remember where they were before and where they, where they had fallen from, but they were to repent. Now listen, when I was saying that part about falling away, if the Spirit of God said to your heart, you better believe you have, what are you going to do with that? 
Are you going to look at that and say, yeah, you know, one of these days I really should do something about this. But I'm going to keep on keeping on the way I am right now. Repentance means when the Spirit of God says, there is a problem here and you need to correct it. Repentance says, I will correct it. If I've been walking this direction away from God, then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to start walking toward God. I'm going to change what I'm doing. This is what Christ calls the church and what He calls all believers who fall into that category of having lost the love you had at first to do, to love God in that way. And then the last step, and do the works you did at first. Now, they were still busy in the church at Ephesus. He's not asking them to do more works. You know what he's talking about? The passion for the works. The reason, the motivation behind the works. Not serving God out of duty, but serving God out of dedication because you love Him. And you are so grateful for your salvation, and you are so in love with Jesus Christ that you can't imagine doing anything else. That's what he's calling the church, and that's what he's calling us all to. We want to remember that most important thing that we have, and that's love. Jesus said this, and I just lost my place here. Oh, well, what he said, and I'll read it for you, (laughs) is this. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That was the greatest command. Now listen to the second. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. So this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to love in this way. He wants us to live in this way. This is how God wants us to operate. Now, the last part of this passage. When we come to this final verse, verse 7, we find an invitation from Jesus Christ, but also a warning. So look carefully with me at this seventh verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the first part of this is an invitation to us. We aren't to just hear the words that are coming out of the mouth of John or from the pen of John or from the mouth of the Lord. Any of us can hear things that we need to do, and we hear the sounds and we hear the voice, and that's as far as we take it. In order to obey, we have to commit to not just hearing the words, but doing something about it. And that's what this means when it says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Listen, when the Spirit of God talks to your heart, don't harden your heart to the voice of God. Don't make excuses. Don't justify yourself. Listen to the voice of God. And when God speaks... We need to listen. When we listen to the Spirit of God, we will apply the Scripture to our life in noticeable ways. 
As a matter of fact, when Paul was writing about walking in the Spirit, responding to the ministry of the Spirit in our lives, you know what he said? That when we do that, there will be fruit byproduct of the Spirit that is evident in our lives. In Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 22, it says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you see what heads the list when we listen to the voice of the Spirit? Love. Love for God. Love for those around us. We should have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us. We need to see the work of the Spirit demonstrated in our lives through this byproduct, through this fruit of the Spirit. This is what Jesus is calling this church to, and brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what He calls us to as well. We need to love God in a spirit-motivated, spirit-empowered way that will lead us to loving one another. Last part of the passage, look at the last sentence of the seventh verse. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, when we come to this last part of the passage, you know what we find? We are to concentrate on the eternal. The tree of life is an interesting study. When we look in the book of Genesis, in the garden, usually we think only of the tree of knowledge, but there was also the tree of life. It was something that brought eternal life to Adam and Eve, and when they were closed off from the garden because of sin, they no longer had access to it. The tree of life is mentioned here, and then we're going to see that it's mentioned again in the latter part of the book of Revelation. So what is Jesus saying to them? What He's saying is this, look, don't get distracted by the things around you. Don't take your eyes off of the most essential part of your life, me. Focus on the eternal, not on the temporal. If I had to pick one thing that makes it most difficult to love the Lord Jesus Christ the way I should, it would be the distraction of the temporal. I'm not looking at the tree of life and thinking about the prize. And I'm not looking back to the tree that Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins and to give me access to the eternal. I'm looking at all the stuff around me and I'm getting bogged down by those things forgetting the passion that I should have for Christ Jesus. This morning, where are you? Are you distracted? Are you serving out of duty? Have you looked and said, there was a point in my life when I was passionate about Jesus and right now I'm not? Let me encourage you, listen to the voice of the Spirit of God because as an overcomer, you have the tree of life and eternity with God to look forward to. John tells us this in his letter. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So in other words, 
Part of really loving God, part of really loving Jesus Christ is to say, I will be obedient to Him. When the Word of God says something, it's not optional. It is something that I do, no matter how frustrating it may be, no matter how difficult it may be in appearance, I will trust God. Look at the next statement, though. And His commandments are not burdensome. In other words, I don't look at the things that God says and say, oh, man, this is awful. I look at it and I say, I will gladly be obedient to God. Then verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Listen, God has already given us the ability to overcome the world by our faith in Jesus Christ. And so really, what the Word of God is calling us to is live like it. Live as an overcomer. Live as a partaker of the tree of life. Don't get engaged in the things that distract. Look at your destiny as an overcomer, the tree of life. The text concludes with this. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This morning, do you believe that? Or are you a captive of this world? Have you allowed yourself to become so engaged in the things of this world that you've lost your passion for Jesus Christ? In Christ, you've conquered. You do not find the same path that the rest of this world is pursuing. You're on a different path, and your path is toward the tree of life. So what Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus and us is this, pursue that eternal path. Listen to the words of the Spirit of God in your heart and live in light of them. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, as we look at this text, we are challenged as those so easily distracted, as those who often don't listen to the voice of the Spirit of God, perhaps even as those who have left their first love. Lord, help us to not forsake Jesus Christ. Help us to love Him passionately. Help us to be able to look at the things that we've done in the past and they pale in significance to the things that we are doing now because of our love for Jesus. Oh God, break our hearts. Show us where we need to repent and show us where we can do even greater deeds than we've done in the past because we're doing it for all the right reasons. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.